0: When critics question or even attack your faith, do you run and hide? Rick Wade proclaims, there's no reason to fear. Now, unprobe. Sometimes we Christians shy away from books which attack our beliefs because we're afraid we can't answer the objections. That's understandable. Often the authors of such books carry impressive credentials. It's easy to feel intimidated. Another response, which is the opposite of fearful avoidance, is haughty dismissal. Sometimes we act as if our position is so obviously true that others can be dismissed as downright stupid and hardly worth bothering with. Even if the opponent's arguments are bad, that's no reason to adopt an arrogant attitude. It's especially bad when the dismissive Christian hasn't even bothered to read the book. A better response, I think, is to use such occasions to grow in understanding and to exercise one's apologetic muscles by working at answering the challenges posed. So, for example, when a doctrine is challenged, by studying the subject, we grow in our knowledge of Christian beliefs. And, here comes the uncomfortable part, we're sometimes corrected in our understanding. Another advantage is preparation for real face-to-face encounters with critics. Responding to arguments in a book means there isn't the pressure of a person staring at you, waiting for an answer, and fully expecting one. This week I'm going to use Sam Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation, to give some suggestions about what to look for in such books. I won't try to address every challenge. Others have given more extensive responses. I titled this series, No Reason to Fear, for a good reason. The challenges of critics throughout the ages have not been able to prove Christianity false, and those of modern-day critics won't either. Most of their arguments have already been answered. When we brace ourselves and start reading a critic's book, we often find that the arguments don't pack that great a punch after all, much like the neighborhood bully who the other boys are afraid of, but really have no reason to be. Of course, we can't always answer seemingly good objections, and certainly can't answer them all to the atheist's satisfaction. I'll go further than that. I don't think we have to answer every objection. There will always be objections. But it's as intellectually wrong to drop one's convictions because of a few unanswered criticisms as it is to hold such convictions for no reason at all. Atheists obviously don't abandon their beliefs so easily, and they shouldn't expect us to either. You've been listening to Probe with your host, Rick Wade. Sam Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation, has been examined and found wanting. Get your free copy of Rick's transcript, No Reason to Fear, at probe.org. And join us next time as we proclaim God's principles to practice for a lifetime, here on Probe. If we're going to engage books like Letter to a Christian Nation responsibly, we have to be ready to hear some good criticisms of our beliefs or actions. We have to accept the fact that there are some hard things to deal with in our beliefs, especially the problem of evil. We need to admit our inability to give satisfying answers to all objections if we're going to expect that kind of openness from critics. Also, it's often Christians who come under attack rather than Christianity. Harris spends a lot of time here. Christians have done some bad things, and they need to be acknowledged. Our focus this week, however, is on the bad arguments presented by critics. What we look for are questionable assumptions, logical fallacies, and incorrect facts. Harris's book is plagued with fallacious arguments, a surprising turn since he presents his side as being that of reason. So I'm going to spend most of my time on those, and mention the other things when appropriate. Don't let the term logical fallacies put you off, like they're things only specialists can address. It's just another name for poor reasoning. So, for example, if you make the claim that Christianity is the only true religion, and someone responds that you only believe that because you grew up in a Christian nation, you could cry foul. You're making a global claim. Where you're from is irrelevant. If it's true, it's true in India and China and the U.S. and everywhere else, too. Although fallacious arguments can have psychological force when we don't spot them and they seem correct, they have no logical force. Their conclusions should not be believed. Here's a fallacy from Harris's book to get us started. In the introductory note to the reader, Harris commits the fallacy of false alternatives or the black and white fallacy. In a brief discussion of origins, Harris implies that there are only two choices. One can be either an evolutionist like he is, meaning a naturalistic evolutionist, or a creationist. And by creationist, he means someone who believes in a 6,000-year-old universe. Well, what about old earthers, or those who hold to a progressive creation theory? If responsible Christian scholars consider that a viable option, it's wrong to imply that there are only two. When given just two options, it might be appropriate to ask, Are those my only choices? More tomorrow. Sam Harris's favorite target in his attack on religion is its supposed immorality. He tells us that, quote, Christians have abused, oppressed, enslaved, insulted, tormented, tortured, and killed people in the name of God for centuries on the basis of a theologically defensible reading of the Bible. Well, that's a surprise. He accuses Christians of picking and choosing sections of Scripture that present a more loving God, while ignoring the truly telling ones which reveal a God who condones slavery and the beating and killing of rebellious children. But Harris is guilty of this picking and choosing himself. He commits the fallacy which is called the neglect of relevant evidence. To be fair, he does note that it is undeniable that many people of faith make heroic sacrifices to relieve the suffering of other human beings. But he doesn't bother listing them. He gives no space to the great work done by Christians in the fields of medicine, literacy, agriculture, famine relief, etc. He ignores the good work of organizations like Mercy Ships, which takes life-changing medical help to people in third-world nations in the name of Christ. Well, he doesn't completely ignore missionary efforts. One of his favorite rants is against the evils perpetrated by missionaries. They waste time preaching about such things as a virgin birth, when there is important work to be done. The most memorable accusation is when he charges missionaries who preach against the use of condoms with genocidal piety. Genocidal! Maybe a little exaggeration there? In another place, Harris commits the fallacy called causal oversimplification. As he sees it, religion is the cause of conflicts in Palestine, the Balkans, Sudan, Nigeria, and other countries. Religion is so unnatural and wrong-headed to atheists that it becomes an easy target for casting blame. While people have certainly fought in the name of religion, according to the BBC's War Audit, a 2004 report on the link between religion and war, there have been few genuinely religious wars in the last 100 years. For example, the Arab-Israeli conflicts over the last half-century have in fact been wars of nationalism, liberation of territory, or self-defense. If we want to find genuine wars over religion, the report concludes, we need to go back to the wars of Arab expansion, the Crusades, and the Reformation wars. Tomorrow, some more fallacies. Sam Harris's book is titled Letter to a Christian Nation, not simply because he's against Christianity. He wants all religion to come to an end. It just happens that Christianity is the most prominent religion in America. Because he lumps all religion together, he can smear Christianity with the evils of Islam by implication. This is a fallacy. It's called the fallacy of faulty comparison. It occurs when someone wrongly generalizes from individual cases to the whole. Because Islam and Christianity are both classified as religions, Harris apparently thinks that what counts against one counts against the other as well, without acknowledging major differences. Another argument Harris presents employs a fallacy we've already discussed, the fallacy of causal oversimplification. Harris commits this fallacy when he tells us that the antisemitism that built the Nazi death camps was a direct inheritance from medieval Christianity. The reality of Christian antisemitism throughout the ages cannot be denied. However, Harris's evaluation is simplistic. He ignores the shift from religious persecution to racial persecution, which occurred in the 19th century, notably in Russia. Another major omission in Harris's discussion is the strong influence of Darwinism in Hitler's thought that led him to think that people who were racially or eugenically inferior needed to be eliminated from the evolving human race. Although some people already believed in the inferiority of some races, and although Darwinism wasn't Hitler's sole inspiration... Historian Richard Weikert writes, Darwinism was a central, guiding principle of Nazi ideology, especially of Hitler's own worldview. Weikert quotes Richard Evans, a historian at Cambridge University. The real core of Nazi beliefs lay in the faith Hitler proclaimed in his speech of September 1938 in Science, a Nazi view of science, as the basis for action. Science demanded the furtherance of the interest not of God, but of the human race and above all, the German race and its future in a world ruled by ineluctable laws of Darwinian competition between races and between individuals. Weichert continues, This is not a controversial claim by anti-evolutionists, but is commonly recognized by scholars who study Nazism. One of the questionable assumptions in Sam Harris's letter to a Christian nation is his assertion that there is no question that human beings evolved from non-human ancestors. Of course, there is indeed a question about this, a question raised by highly educated scientists, easily as qualified as Mr. Harris. It's no wonder, really, that Harris makes such bold statements. He's prevented from allowing divine creation by his basic worldview commitments. He admits that he doesn't know why the universe exists— but he's confident there's no God behind it. That sounds like a philosophical presupposition. What evidence or reasons does he give for it? Harris might like to pretend like his beliefs are based solely on the trinity of science, reason, and nature, but his naturalism cannot be established by these. Rather, it undergirds his use of them. Harris claims that atheism isn't really a belief, that there shouldn't even be the word atheism. Hmm. Although atheism has long been understood to mean the belief that there is no God, many atheists today deny that. It isn't the belief that there is no God, it's simply an absence of belief in God. It's a kind of default position where everyone should be until given sufficient reasons to believe in God. Thus, the atheist has nothing to defend or prove. Really, folks, who's going to believe that atheists are beliefless about God? That they don't actually believe that there is no God? It's astonishing the effort they put forth in arguing against religious belief, if indeed they have no belief at all. However, we can go back and forth with atheists about whether they truly deny the existence of God, or we can let that stand and simply ask what they do believe about ultimate reality. For surely they believe something. It's simply false to assume that atheism is the default position. If one denies God, one must adopt some other view about ultimate reality. Naturalism is a metaphysical position that has serious problems of its own. If Christians are responsible to give good reasons for their belief, so are atheists. Sam Harris speaks as a voice on high, shouting down to we poor, ignorant people who are stuck in our absurd religious beliefs. It's hard to imagine anyone with thoughtful convictions changing his or her beliefs based on this book. He's preaching to the choir. Now that you have a few tips on what to look for, you might want to take a look at the book and hear the rest of the sermon.